0: Welcome, adventurers. In season one, the talented thief Karia Vardish signed a lucrative contract with the mysterious wizard Esmeray to retrieve a well guarded item. It is time for Karia to go to work. Season three starts now. Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents. Oh. Tales from the dungeon. This was entirely more blood than she had ever intended to sacrifice. An arrow was still lodged in her back. Karia's left thigh burned as she ran. Blood from the wound there ran down her leg, beginning to seep inside her boot. With every footfall or twist of the torso, the arrow's head grated against her shoulder blade with a flare of agony. She ran on. Wounds made no difference if her pursuers caught her. Her only chance was putting enough distance between herself and the cave before she attempted misdirection or found a passable hiding place. She might have two bells until Sol rose, if she didn't come up with something before then this was all for naught karia's feet struck the rocky ground in silence even injured her long legs worked driving her forward clutched in her arms cradled and protected was a large metal After leaving Esmeray's tower, Karia had made contact with the local thieves' guild. Inquiries were made and recommendations considered. Then came more questions and discussions with the very few she trusted. Finally, two messages had been sent. Time waiting for replies was not wasted. Karia worked in cities and dungeons for the most part, not that she was opposed to the open country. The desert, however, was another thing entirely. She had not been in the glass sea since she was a child, and she had never been to the burning hills. So she spent days in the Artist Port library, researching the history of the treaty signed between the Barata province and the seven tribes. To supplement the one she had been given by the old wizard, she purchased some rare old maps of the area from the time before the border was closed, and spent days committing them to memory. They cost a pretty bit of gold, But that did not bother her. When this task was done, gold would never be a problem again. Six days after the messages had been sent, the first reply was received with an acceptance and a description of landmarks for where to meet. For the price offered, the consultant would wait a month for Karia's arrival. The second reply was much longer in the coming. In fact, when the second week had passed with no news, Karia had revisited the list of consultants and made a backup decision. As the third week neared its end, she grew uncharacteristically restless. Karia would find herself scratching her finger, the finger she had pricked with Esmeray's damnable quill. On the eve of the twenty-first day, as she blotted the ink on the message to be sent to the alternate consultant, a small knock came at the door of Karia's temporary apartment. Rising, she moved cautiously to the door, she placed her ear against the wood, no sound. Her hand fell to a dagger at her belt. Those that knew she was here knew to knock once, wait ten beats, knock twice, wait ten more beats, and then scratch. It was well past the first ten beats, and no second knock. Dagger now drawn, the other hand slowly dropped to the door handle. A massive thud rattled the door. Karya sprung back protruding two inches through the door between boards no more than a hand's width from where her head had just been was the dark metallic tip of an arrow Coy, God's damned coy. it appeared she had gotten the message after all not bothering to open the door Karia made her way back to the small writing desk grabbed the newly finished letter and tossed it into the small fire in the hearth She sat down at the desk, poured two glasses of water, and waited. Eight bars later, the wood of the door squealed as the arrow disappeared. The door then opened quietly, and a short woman slipped through, closing the door behind. The unstrung bow on the woman's back protruded nearly a foot over her head. Her short, cropped hair was a mix of the palest blonde and silvery white. She had fine facial features, and a dusky hue to her skin, set off by her eyes, the lightest of lilac. After locking eyes with Caria for a few beats, a smirk appeared on her face, and she dropped her gaze to inspect the arrowhead, shaft, and fletchings of the arrow she had pulled from the door but a moment ago, before returning it to the quiver on her hip. Nice to see you again, Karia. Karia's eyes narrowed, and she let out a dubious, humph, sound she pushed one of the glasses toward Koi. Koy unslung the bow from over her shoulder and leaned it against the wall, dropping a heavy leather pack next to it on the floor before crossing the room to stand across from Karia. Taking the cup, the short woman raised it in a salute and threw it back in one gulp. When she finished, she frowned at the cup and then at Karia. Still a bundle of fun, I see, she said, clunking a plain steel ring on her right hand against the empty cup in her left. I am on the job, Karia replied, the only explanation needed in her mind. Koi shrugged in a silent suit yourself before taking a few steps back and sitting on the single cot in the small room. A silence hung in the air as each regarded the other. You took your time getting here. Two more days and you would have arrived to an empty room. Karia spoke, breaking the silence. Another shrug. I got here as soon as I could. I came from Erdwind Vale. Caria's mask of professionalism held, but just barely. There is work in Erdwind Vale, she asked dubiously. The smallest shake of the head. Family business. Odd, thought Caria, but given the relationship, there was no room to satisfy that curiosity. Karya sipped her water before saying, After covering that much ground... You must be exhausted, then gestured to the bed. Get some rest. We leave with the opening of the gate in the morning. Coy stood, walked to the desk, poured another glass of water, threw it back in the same fashion, shaking her head in disappointment after she finished. After a nod to Caria, she went to her pack and bow and drug them to the corner of the room. She squatted down, rummaging briefly through her things, loosened some straps on her leather armor but didn't remove it She then turned sitting back into the corner Coy drew a dagger from her high boot crossed her arms over her chest and legs one over the other Finally she rested her head against the wall I'm not sure what we are doing that is worth ten thousand gold but I'll assume it's not safe Then with a nod to the bed I'd sleep in the bed but I'm on the job She winked mockingly and then closed her eyes Cinder saw fit to bless her, not that she believed in such things. As first purple and then pink began to bleed into the night sky, Karya had found a deep and narrow stone gully. Within the gully was an area where the seasonal rains had worn a sort of cave in one wall, red stone jutting out overhead in an overhang. She crawled in and collapsed. She had been on the move for well over three bells. Just before sleep swallowed her, she willed herself awake, struggling to sit up. She had to deal with her wounds. Reaching awkwardly over her shoulder, she gingerly grasped the arrow shaft and pulled. She winced. The arrowhead had turned during her long run and was caught behind her shoulder blade. Cursing under her breath, she stopped to consider. Push it the rest of the way through? No, no. She couldn't be sure the damage to the muscle would not render her arm useless. It had to come out the way it went in. She placed the sheathed dagger between her teeth and bit down. Then she reached again, taking hold of the shaft. She pulled. A wave of nausea. It was stuck. She tried to twist. It scraped on the bone. Closing her eyes, she exhaled hard through her nose and bit down tight. In one motion, she pushed the arrow deeper in, Twisted the head, she felt it pop loose of the bone, and then pulled it free, just before spitting the dagger out and retching on the ground. Her vision narrowed to a single spot. Face down on hands and knees, she breathed. It was all she could do. In, out, in, out. Slowly her vision began to expand, the world around her returning. Reaching a hand out to draw herself up, it fell on something cold and metallic. She looked up and shivered. Her hand was resting on the urn. As she watched, the blood that covered her hand she had used to remove the arrow vanished. Drawn into the urn's terrible exterior. Under her hand, the urn no longer felt cold, but radiated a warm, pulsing heat that beat a familiar rhythm the beat of a heart. She drew her hand away quickly, sitting back against the rock, grimacing as her wounded shoulder made contact. Her eyes then fell to the wound on her thigh. It needed stitches. Not knowing how much energy she had, Karya wasted no time. She had next to nothing. All of her supplies were with Koi, if she still lived. In the chaos of the escape, she had not dared to return to Koi's position and endanger her as well. But strapped to her waist were always a few emergency supplies. Needle and gut string were removed from a small pouch at her belt. A cold sweat set in as she worked, hissing as the needle passed through flesh. Dizziness began to dance in her head. Kariya's stomach quivered and clenched. It was done. The arrow wound in her back most likely needed stitches as well. But there was no way to accomplish that. Her head turned, looking again on the urn. There was nothing more to be done. She had to sleep. She would either be discovered or not. It was up to Cinder now. Not that she believed in such things. Supplies were gathered in packs loaded to bursting in the pre dawn light. Koi and Karia left via the southern gate. A soul cracked the horizon. They stayed in close proximity to a wagon train, so as to seem to the casual observer to be part of it. As they traveled south on the main road, they gradually let the wagons pull ahead, until both the walls of Port and the merchant wagons had dwindled into opposite horizons. Only then did they turn east, skirting the northern edge of the massive desert known as the Glass Sea. They traveled three bells until the day's heat reflected and radiated from every blade of yellow-brown scrub grass, from every grain of sand. They made a lean-to with a small canvas under the branches of a withered acacia tree and waited until Sol had set. It was still stifling as they resumed their journey east. But within a bell's time, the temperature had become pleasant. A bell after that, they drew on cloaks as the desert night began to take on a chill. Two more bells, and they made camp again. Waking before dawn, they pushed hard, and just before the midday bell, with the horizon shifting and shimmering in the heat, they made the outcropping of rocks that was their destination. Drenched in sweat and parched, they pushed into the outcropping, taking shelter from Sol. After a bell of rest, Koi scouted the outcropping and its immediate surroundings. She returned to inform Karia that there was no sign of any humanoid activity. There are a lot of rocks in the desert. You are sure these are the ones he meant? I am sure, Caria said. But she was not. Thrice the height of a tall orc, twenty paces across, split by a cleft that runs generally north and south, was what Fionn had written. But how tall was a tall orc? And surely the paces of a human differed a significant amount from those of a halfling. Where they were fit the vague description an approximate distance east of Artisport. But for all Karya knew, so did another twenty rock formations in this area. He will be here. Koi shrugged and then found a shaded spot among the rocks to wait out Sol's journey across the sky. They took turns dozing and sipping water. Even in the shade it was hot enough to make sleep uncomfortable. Soul set. Arjun, nearly full, hung high in the sky, casting silvery light across the sands to the south. Taking to the southern side of the outcropping, they kept watch and ate cold rations. As they ate, Karia sensed a change in Koi's posture. She had stopped chewing, eyes trained on the horizon. Karia turned her head in the direction of Koi's gaze. At first, nothing. But then, a flicker of movement, they both watched. The object grew larger as it made its silent approach. Without looking, Koi bent her bow, fixing the string into position. When this was done, she drew a dark arrow from the quiver and set it to the string, but she did not draw. A bar passed. A cat, Koi whispered. Karia could see that it was an animal of some sort, but it was another twenty beats before she could make out the cat's features. Damn, she thought with a grudging respect. Koi had the eyes of a hawk. Karia knew wild animals could be curious, but they were also cautious. This particular cat was beginning to unnerve her. It did not stop, but walked an unwavering line toward their position. Koi must have felt the same because she stood, holding the bow toward her hip, hand ready on the string. When the cat was still over 200 feet from them, but coming on steadily, Koi muttered, Too bold for my taste. And in a perfect motion, raised a large bow, drew the string, and loosed the arrow. In the moonlight, Karya lost sight of it almost as soon as it left the bow. The cat, however, stopped in its tracks, an arrow buried in the sand just before its front paws. It sat back on its haunches, tilting its head to consider them for a moment, and then a disorienting shimmer replaced the cat's form, as if the desert heat had returned only to where the cat had been. Koi let out a low growl, knocked another arrow, raising the bow, and drawing again. But the arrow never flew. Where the cat had been now stood a short humanoid figure, arms stretched out over its head in a gesture of submission. Karia walked five paces toward the figure and called, "Fion, I be Fion." The figure called back in a tone that seemed almost amused. Might I put my hands down or is that one going to turn me into a cactus? The statement was followed by a giggle. Karia motioned for the bow to be lowered, and it was. The figure dropped his hands to his belt and gave it a tug, as if to straighten his trousers, and then approached. Fionn stopped when he reached Karia, placing his hands upon his hips and looking up with squinting eyes and a crooked grin. The halfling stood just shy of three feet tall. His hair was a wavy auburn, streaked with red highlights. His face was deeply tanned, and wrinkled from his life in this unforgiving terrain. His teeth were crooked and stained. He wore no armor to speak of. His loose-fitting clothes, cloak, and boots were various shades of tans, browns, and earthen reds. Karia, I presume? The halfling said with no offered hand. Karya nodded. And this is Koi. Thanks for missing. Fionn raised his chin and winked at Koi. Koi raised the arrow she had just taken off the string in acknowledgment before returning it to the quiver the burton hills the halfling dropped his hands from his hips and i say old fionn is mad a pause followed by a cackle then abruptly he walked past karia toward the formation of rocks karia has gathered talented associates to her side and yet we know all did not work out as planned in the end stay tuned next week and find out more about Kari's attempt to retrieve the urn of Skellish Half Handed. In part two of Into the Fire,